k. For the scattering that we calculated, is it just the most probable scattering angle? So we calculate as a function of an arbitrary angle, and this gives us the probability amplitude to scatter at that angle. So we can figure out what the most probable angle is by maximizing the square of that probability amplitude. Not sure where Green's functions come from, and what does the Green's function of a potential represent? Uh, so the Green's functions came from a wave equation. We put in a delta function point source, then the Green's function tells us the response of that wave, whatever wave it is we happen to be solving for. And we're solving for quantum mechanical waves. And I don't know what the Green's function of a potential represents either, but so we solve the free wave equation and then we perturb it with the potential. What are Feynman diagrams? So you can uh, think about this foreign approximation that we did as scattering, <coughs> take a Green's function, bounce it off a potential, and now it comes away. And then the higher order, you add more propagators in between. So you hit the potential more times. So it's like pinball. So you could represent all these equations in terms of diagrams, and this extends even to field theory. So in field theory, you would include the fact that this potential represents a prop propagator for a photon, for example. There's some proton here that we're scattering off of. And then you can scatter again, or you could scatter off something else. Or you could uh, have an <coughs> electron and a positron annihilate into a photon and then turn back into an electron and a positron. So you make all these pretty pictures, but there's rules that tell you each part of the diagram corresponds to a piece of an equation. So instead of writing out a page-long expression for the probability amplitude, you can just write this diagram. It has the same information if you know the rules. And it's much prettier in your notebook. What does momentum transfer mean? So we had our incoming plane wave going along the z direction with uh, a wave number k. So we defined a wave vector k prime. That's the wave vector of the incoming plane wave. So its momentum is h bar times this. And then we detect it along some direction r. So there's another vector k times r hat. That's the wave vector of the outgoing particle after scattering. And h bar times that is it's the final momentum. So the difference is the momentum transfer. That's how much momentum was transferred to the particle from scattering off the target. So we call that kappa. And uh, from knowing the scattering angle, you can work out that kappa is 2k sine theta over 2 for its magnitude. What do we do when the potential is large? Then we read the section on partial wave analysis. But you guys don't like heavy duty math, so we're skipping that section. Um, not quite sure where equation 11.99 comes from or why successive terms in the series evolve additional integrals. But equation was. integral Schrodinger equation with the Green's function. So if we, it involves the full solution. So if we approximate the solution by this, then we get the first order Born approximation. If we approximate in here this, <coughs> the incoming wave plus the first order correction, then we get a second order term that involves two integrals. Because we did one integral to get the first order approximation. Having finished the book, have we decided if Schrodinger's cat is dead? So when we did the uh, NMR, what we were one thing we were supposed to get out of that was this idea about decoherence. So Schrodinger's cat is either dead or alive because the cat interacts with its environment. And the environment, the box, the air, the cat, that whole thing is some very complicated thing that has many degrees of freedom and uh, elastic scattering of all those particles will introduce <coughs> decoherence, just like it does in NMR. So for such a big system, 
the decoherence time is very small. So whether we look at the cat or not, it behaves classically either dead or alive, just because it interacts with its environment. You have an electron going around a proton. It doesn't interact with the environment unless you fire a photon in and knock it around. <coughs> Did you guys get that from NMR? You get to take quantum mechanics three or four more times. Don't worry. When is the integral form of Schrodinger's equation more useful than the differential form? Well, when you're doing scattering, it's very useful. How is the low energy approximation to obtain the scattering amplitude different from the approximation where the potential is not necessarily low energy? Uh, <coughs> low energy approximation means that we're taking the incoming momentum and therefore the final momentum to be small, which means we're taking large wavelengths. So the low energy approximation is where the wavelength of the incoming plane wave is much bigger than the range of this potential. And then in that limit, you can neglect this variation. So taking k to 0, you just get an integral of the potential. So you lose the information about the structure because you're only probing it at very long wavelengths. You just get the overall size. Uh, for which potentials and beam energies does the Born approximation hold? holds for weak potentials <coughs> and energies that are not too small. So, well, if the velocity is too small and there are bound states forming in the potential, then you have to start to worry. Because we didn't, in, by taking this first order correction to the potential, we won't get the bound states correctly. But, uh, how useful is it uh, as an approximation in the lab? Uh, I don't know about in condensed matter, but in particle physics, everything is based on a fancier version of this Born approximation. So all these Feynman diagrams are effectively higher orders in the Born approximation, and that's what's used for everything. Everything that you can calculate. And the other things, there's no way to calculate them. So. If you need to do a calculation for scattering, that's usually what's done. You can use other things to parameterize the result, but you can't calculate it from first principles. So last time <coughs> we derived the first order Born approximation for the scattering amplitude from the integral Schrodinger equation, which we checked gives us the correct solution to the hydrogen atom one more time. But it's still too complicated to think about, so we're going to make even more simplifying assumptions. So in addition to the potential being weak, we're going to assume that it's spherically symmetric. So if it's spherically symmetric, then in this integral, <coughs> we'll choose the z-axis to be along the momentum transfer. So we'll write um, <coughs> k prime minus k dotted into r naught. That's the magnitude of the momentum transfer vector wave vector times r cos theta not. Then our scattering amplitude is only a function of theta. gives us a factor of 2 pi.
left with the theta integration, and we'll write that uh, x is cos theta, the dx is minus sine theta. So then we just have to integrate e to the i k r naught x. of the exponential between 1 and minus 1 will get sine kr naught kappa. Sine kappa r naught d of r naught. One of the factors of r naught cancels. to explain why protons and neutrons stick together in a nucleus. And what he said was, he argued that there must be some particle that they exchange, which ended up being called pion. And this exponential suppression is because of the distance the pion can travel as a virtual particle from the uncertainty principle is inversely proportional to its mass. So it has some effective range unlike a Coulomb potential, which has an infinite range. Coulomb potential has an infinite range because the photon is massless. So it can go very far. So if we put that Yukawa potential in, and beta is the strength of the potential. So then this 1 over r will cancel this r. target produces a spherical wave. So if we look down the beam line past the target, there are two contributions here. There's a contribution from the incoming plane wave and there's a contribution from the spherical wave. And they can interfere. So if it's, an, if it's a repulsive potential, have a negative sign in the scattering amplitude. That means we have a destructive interference here. So the particle is less likely to be found behind the target. It's more likely to be found out here. So that agrees with our classical understanding of what a repulsive potential should do. If it's 
an attractive potential, and we've got the plus sign. So there's constructive interference. So it's more likely to be found behind the target. And that's what an attractive potential should do. That is the coolest thing ever. Just in case you guys have forgotten how exciting quantum mechanics is. From the sign of the scattering amplitude, find out about forces. You thought there was a force there, but it was just a quantum mechanical interference. So let's calculate the uh, total cross section. Sorry, Turkey. So we have to calculate the scattering amplitude squared integrated over the sphere. finally get something for the total cross-section. Depends on the mass of the particle that's coming in, the strength of the potential. Mu is the inverse range of the potential, and k is the wave number. So you can express this in terms of the energy. So if we get a low energy scattering, k goes to zero. something that only depends, well, it depends on the range of the potential, and we've lost the information about whether the potential was attractive or repulsive, because we had to square scattering amplitude. If we go to high energy scattering, this term. When k gets large, we drop this term. So at large k, cross-section goes like 1 over k squared, and there's an m up top, so we can write that in terms of the energy. So the cross-section goes like 1 over the energy. So high energies less likely to scatter. So it makes sense. You can also use the Sikawa potential to cheat. The Coulomb potential. So if you wanted to do the Coulomb potential properly with mathematical rigor, it's very, very complicated. But uh, in our formula for the Yukawa potential. We just take mu goes to zero. Then it should reduce to the Coulomb potential. And we take beta equal to h bar c alpha. Terms of uh, 
power and the scattering angle over two. And if we write that in terms of the energy, <coughs> So written in terms of the energy and the scattering angle, you find the same thing that you would have found classically. Which you, you guys probably never calculated that classically. But that's called the Rutherford formula. And he was obviously calculating it before people understood what quantum mechanics was because it was his discoveries that were helping to contribute to finding out that classical mechanics didn't work. So when he did the calculation for scattering an alpha particle off the nucleus, you got this classical result, and it's the same thing quantum mechanically. Uh, I have a question. Yeah. How similar is that to the mathematical rigorous way to do it? Is the answer pretty similar? Oh, the final answer is similar. Yeah, it's exactly the same. Okay. So you get the right answer doing it this way. So rigor schmigger. So the Sukawa potential is actually useful because it crops up all the time. So the place it first cropped up was, of course, in nuclear scattering. So we write our assume there's some strong interaction potential between protons and neutrons. So the strength coefficient, instead of being alpha times h bar c, is some number times h bar c. And since we know the people found out that there are strong interactions, we expect that this number is of order one. So we're sort of pushing the limits of uh, the Born approximation, because it's probably not weak enough to do the first order term, or maybe even several terms. But we'll just get a qualitative estimate of what the cross section should be. So Yukawa said that the inverse range should go like the pion mass based on the uncertainty principle. So we can write it. The inverse range is the pion mass times the speed of light squared over h bar c. So we get an inverse length. Pion mass is about 135 MeV. Well, pion mass times the speed of light squared is 135 MeV. H bar is 10 to the minus 16 EV seconds, and the speed of light is 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. So you get that mu is 1 over 1.4 times 10 to the minus 15 meters. It's about no, exactly 1 over 1 femtometer remember your SI conventions. It's also called the Fermi. So that's about the size of a proton, actually, one Fermi. So the cross-section we get for scattering protons and Neutrons, total cross-section, is like the nucleon mass, over the pion mass to the fourth, from our total cross-section formula for Yukawa potential. 
So if we write it like this, then this is the mc squared is the energy corresponding to the mass. So this is the energy of a proton, rest energy of a proton squared divided by the rest energy of pi on to the fourth. Proton and our neutron weighs about the 980 MeV. Pi on 135 MeV. So you get 5 pi. 7 times 10 to the minus 27 meters squared. Which is about 57 barns. So when we started out in scattering, we mentioned that this 10 to the minus 28 meters squared is the nuclear size cross-section. So now we see how it comes out. Uh, balancing between the proton mass and the pion mass gives us that type of cross section. So, one of our stump the chump questions was about neutron stars. Part of the question was about how neutrons, how you can turn protons into neutrons and back and forth. So neutrons can change into a proton by emitting a W boson and turn into an electron and a neutrino. So those are called weak interactions. So there's also a weak Kikawa potential. So we'll put a W on it now. There's also, in addition to a W, there's a Z. So neutrinos in particular can scatter off an electron by exchanging a W or a Z. But if it exchanges a W, then it turns into electron. So the elastic scattering is through the Z boson. So it's the mass of the Z that's going to determine the range of the weak power potential. smaller than a proton. And the LHC, if it ever works, is supposed to probe distances about a tenth of that, maybe a little smaller. So we also have to cheat again because uh, anyone know the neutrino mass? Really, really small. Really, really small. Exactly. So typically, we're going to be interested Today we're going to be interested in en neutrino energies that are about an MeV, which are much bigger than the rest energy of a neutrino, because the neutrino mass is so small that we don't know what it is yet. We know it's not zero, or at least some of them are not zero. So the typical momentum for a relativistic particle with MeV energy, the momentum times C is also MeV. So the wave number is MeV over H bar C. That's going to be much less than mu, which is 90 GeV over H bar C. So this is low energy scattering, even though the neutrino is relativistic. It's low energy compared to the range. The energy is low, so the wavelength is long compared to the range of this potential. 
So you can just take this calculation over here. Uh, so down here, there's an MZ. And instead of <coughs> the mass of the neutrino squared, we'll cheat and put in the energy over the speed of light squared. interactions. We said the beta was about h bar c. For our weak interactions, we'll put in alpha times g squared. Why are we doing that? Well, g is just some fudge factor again. There, the fudge factor was order 1, so we didn't write it down. g is some fudge factor, but we're estimating that this is a weak interaction that's suppressed by alpha. And the reason we know that is that electromagnetism and weak interactions unify at high energies. That's what Glashow, Salam, and Weinberg got the Nobel Prize for. So we know that alpha should be the typical strength of those interactions, just like it is for electromagnetism. And they just seem weak because the Z mass is much bigger than the photon mass, and the W mass is about the same as the Z. So if we put that in, for MEV energies, we'll get that the cross-section is g squared times n to the minus 48 meters squared. And experimentally, that cross-section is n to the minus 47 meters squared. So the cross-section is much smaller than nuclear cross-sections because the z-mass is much, much bigger than the ion mass. So given that cross-section, say I sent a neutrino into a big piece of lead, how far would it get into the lead before it scatters? typical mean free path, take one over the number density, so the number per unit volume, times the cross-section, which is an area, that gives you the mean free path. So why does that work? If you have, think of the cross-section as a little circle, the length of the cylinder is the mean free path, and then you have one of these for each target in your volume. So what length do you need to fill up your volume with these cylinders? That's how you get the mean free path. So just qualitatively, how far should it go? So we need to know the number of protons and neutrons in a piece of lead. So the density of lead is uh, 11,400 kilograms per meter cubed, defined by the mass of a proton, n to the minus 27 kilograms. We'll get the number density of protons and neutrons, because electrons don't contribute much to the mass of an atom, right? It's all protons and neutrons. The cross-section is 10 to the minus 47 meters squared. 
So you get 1.5 times 10 to the 16 meters, which is 1.6 light years. No one's surprised. You guys need the answer. If we did it for water, water a, has a density of 1,000 kilograms per cubic meter. And you would get uh, 18 light years. So if we want to stop a neutrino with water, we need a lot of water. Or we could get a lot of neutrinos. So conveniently, there's a free source of neutrinos nearby. Anywhere, know where you can get free neutrinos? The sun. The sun. Inside the sun, <laughs> protons are converting to neutrons plus electrons plus neutrinos. And also protons are combining with electrons. That's a D. Deuterium. So the sun is making deuterium as part of the cycle, the fusion cycle. That process releases neutrinos by these weak interactions. So at the surface of the Earth, there's six times 10 to, 10 to the 10 neutrinos per square centimeter per second. With an average energy of 0.26 MeV. So suppose we have a detector that can hold three tons of water. What's the rate of neutrinos we should detect? Assuming you know how to detect when they actually interact. So someone did this experiment, but they didn't actually get this many because the detectors can't actually detect the low energy neutrinos. So they only get the highest energy ones. But they still were able to detect them. People were even able to detect neutrinos from a supernova in 1987. And now they have much better neutrino detectors. So people who look for supernovas they're waiting to hear from people with neutrino detectors because the first sign of a supernova in our galaxy will be the neutrinos that are detected in those detectors. You can sign up yourself to get an automated email when that neutrino event happens and then you can point your telescope in that direction. Our astronomer isn't here, right? Well, it'll still be fun. Did they use water or some other material for their detectors? Um, the <coughs> I'm going to show you. Well, I guess I can show you the picture now. The one they built in Japan, uh, the earlier ones all used water. The fanciest one 
now uses heavy water. So it's, it's got um, it's water where the proton is replaced by Remember, Yukawa predicted there should be this pion that explains the strong interactions. So in the 40s, they actually found these pions. They thought they found them earlier, but they turned out to be muons, which were like electrons. So they were a little confused. But in the 40s, they got it all straightened out. This guy, Powell, figured out how to detect pions and cosmic rays using some modified photographic film. So he would take this extra sensitive photographic film up in RAF bombers or put it on top of the Alps <coughs> and expose it to cosmic rays and then develop it and stare at all the funny little tracks. And here are some snipped out interesting parts for us to get this Nobel Prize. So here there are pions coming in the bottom and uh, then a new track comes off at a funny angle which means that the pion decayed into, in these cases, a muon and a neutrino. And the neutrino is going off in some direction to conserve energy and momentum, but it's neutral, so it doesn't uh, expose on the film. Because it would take a light year or so of film for it to interact. But muons and pions can be charged with electric charge, so they can interact with the silver halide or silver bromide. And uh, he also found that the length muon then decays to an electron, so there's another decay happening with another neutrino coming out. And he found that the muons always had the same range, which meant they had the same momentum, which was another way of seeing that they were really coming from the decay of two-body decay of pions, not there were three other particles coming out at the same time. So here's the neutrino detector in Japan. It's called, they built one called Kamiokande, which was the name of the mountain. So they put it in a mine in the mountain. And the advantage of that is that you can drive a truck into the mountain instead of lowering it down on an elevator a long way. And that was convenient because they needed thousands of photomultiplier tubes to fill up the sides of the tanks so that they would see the shrink off radiation from the electrons that were produced by the neutrinos scattering in their three tons of water. And here, the graduate students are in a rubber raft polishing photomultiplier tubes to keep them clean. That's a little, still can't quite see them. It's a big tank. So the more advanced one, use, using heavy water wasn't as big, because the heavy water makes it more sensitive, but it's still complicated. And then it had to be super clean. So they had to have a clean room in a mine, in the deepest mine, I think, in the world. Lots of fun. So exciting things you can do in grad school. I have one more Yukawa problem. Does anyone care about the condensed matter physics? Solid state? So here's our big, finally, we can do solid state physics. Because we know about Yukawa potentials. And we'll have to use a few things that we learned during the course. And we won't finish by the end of the day. So remember that. Uh, Solids have a band structure. So in semiconductors, there's a valence band that's full, and there's a conduction band that's empty. And uh, the example we're going to do is B 
gallium arsenide. So by itself, not so exciting. But suppose that, so this is position in this direction and the energy of the bands in that direction. Suppose at this position we put in one silicon, take out a gallium, and put in a silicon. Silicon has one more electron than gallium. So we've got an extra electron in our semiconductor. And it's easy to see that um, that extra electron sits in an energy level that's slightly below the conduction band. Well, I say it's easy. It's easy once you know the trick. So the trick is that when the electron is in the conduction band, it just zips along as if it was an almost free electron. But it does it in a tricky way because there's all kinds of complicated interactions going on. Too complicated for us to work out. But the bottom line of all that is that it just behaves like it has a different mass. It has an effective mass. And the way you calculate the effective mass so we calculate the energy in the conduction band of the electron as a function of its momentum or wave number. So if it was just a free electron, that energy would be h bar k squared over 2m. So if you differentiated with respect to k twice, h bar, divide by h bar squared, you would get 1 over m. But because it's in the solid, it's some much more complicated function of momentum. Something that maybe you could calculate in graduate school. Uh, but you can just measure this effective mass by measuring the energy as a function of momentum. So in this particular material, you find that the effective mass of the electron in the conduction band is 0.07 times the electron mass. And then life is easy. Because <coughs> say this electron we kick this electron off of the silicon and it's floating around the conduction band, what does it see? It sees there's a net positive charge at this point. So there should be a coulomb potential. And we've solved what happens to an electron in the refractive coulomb potential. Those were the hydrogen bound states. So this energy difference here, instead of being the energy difference between a free electron and the bound state electron and hydrogen, it's the energy difference between the almost free conduction electron and the bound state around the silicon nucleus. And we know the formulas for that by heart. So for hydrogen, it was alpha squared mc squared over 2. We have to correct that because now the electron has this effective mass m star instead of m. And uh, we also have to correct it because we're not in empty space, we're in a dielectric material. So the speed of light in a dielectric material is different from the speed of light in empty space. <coughs> so the dielectric constant, one way to write it is the dielectric constant of empty space times a relative dielectric constant. So <coughs> this is keeping track of the factors of C in the formula. So it's minus 13.6 electron volts times 0 0.07. And the relative dielectric constant of gallium arsenide is 13.2. So we get minus 5.5 milli electron volts. So 10 to the minus 3 electron volts, not 10 to the 6 electron volts. So that's a very small binding energy. Because this mass is so small and this dielectric, relative dielectric factor is big. So at room temperature, Boltzmann constant times the temperature is about 8.6 times 10 to the minus 5 dB per Kelvin times 300 Kelvin. That's 
about 25 milli electron volts. So at room temperature, thermal fluctuations will just kick this electron out of this bound state up into the conduction band. So that leaves behind an ionized silicon atom. Okay, now let's make it more exciting. I can tell you guys are excited. You're still bloated with turkey. We'll replace N of our galliums with silicon. So we have some number density. Little <coughs> N, which is N over the volume of our semiconductor sample. Now we want to solve for what happens to the electrons. Now we have N, capital N, of these electrons floating around in the conduction band. What do they do? So even though they're not bound to these positive ions, now we have a bunch of these guys scattered around, they're still more likely to be near where the positive charge is because they're attracted there. So the energy of these, people call them the donor electrons, because they were donated by the atoms that we doped into the semiconductor. So the energy of those donor electrons So before we put, put any doping in, the, conduct, the conduction band electrons had this energy with an effective mass. And now after doping, there's some attractive coulomb potential around each silicon ion. And I guess we'll figure that out on Wednesday, and then we'll do reviews for the rest of the week after we finish this problem. And the, there's a practice exam on the website. And uh, according to my schedule, our final is next Monday at 8 a.m.